Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Kelly Underman, Associate Professor in Sociology at Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and the author of Feeling Medicine, How the Pelvic Exam Shapes Medical Training. In our conversation, Kelly introduces us to the work of Lauren Berlant, reflects on her experience finding their work as a graduate student interested in affect, and the value of theory that names a particular experience or vibe that we previously did not have language for. Kelly also helps us better understand Berlant's concept of cruel optimism through discussing her previous work on gynecological teaching programs, her current research on burnout among medical doctors, and the shared social experience of living through COVID. Also, make sure to join us for the companion episode where Kelly guides us through chapter one of Berlant's Cruel Optimism, her 2011 classic. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Even before we get into the topic, I just remembered. So I signed on to my email this morning, and I get this Twitter feed that pops up in my email. I don't actually know how to turn it off. I'd like to. (laughs) But today it popped up, and I think it was you saying that you just got tenure. Is that actually... That's correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. That was exciting. I, yeah, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you have the freedom to say whatever whatever you want <laughs> on the podcast. Not until September 1st. <laughs> not until September 1st when it's official. Um, but yeah, congratulations. That's an exciting thing. And for thank students you. listening to it who might not know about the tenure process, it is a, a time that is more stressful than it should be leading up to tenure. So it's, it's always exciting, that <laughs> moment of relief. Yes, that's a moment of relief. And sort of interesting, right, the background of, of me having just gotten tenure when talking about the subject we're going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah. Actually, if you if you have any connections to make, I'm curious to hear what you think. But um, so we're here to, today to talk about Lauren Berlant. Could you give us a short introduction to who they were or what they were known for? Sure. So Lauren Berlant was a cultural theorist and is sort of one of the leading figures in affect theory, um, which is the one of the subfields that I work in. And they spent their career at the University of Chicago in the Department of English. Um, so they're more of a cultural studies philosophy. Theorist, cultural theorist. They unfortunately passed away in 2021, so very recently at the age of 63. So there's a lot of sort of brilliant work that we will unfortunately not be able to, to get from them. But they have done a lot of really important work, uh, again, around affect theory, about thinking about neoliberalism and modes of attachment. Texts that we're going to dis- discuss, uh, at some point, Cruel Optimism is sort of their, their major work, which is naming sort of problematic attachments to what we would call the good life, quote unquote, under neoliberalism. And it's just a huge contribution to affect theory and, and sort of ways of understanding relationality and attachment and politics of emotion um, in the sort of moment that we're in as a society. Do you get a sense that they're widely read in sociology or for that matter, even within more specific subfields within the discipline? And I'm, I'm curious about this with their work, because these are ideas that enter sociology, right? Neoliberalism, thinking about affect and emotion, probably not as much as we should do in sociology. But I don't know. It's what they have one of these names that I always hear, and I myself should have read this before, <laughs> which is why I'm excited to record this podcast. But do you, do you get a sense that a lot of people are reading their work, or is it more just a name that we know about? I, you know, not in. I don't encounter Vermont as much in sociology. I think if I'm going to encounter them, it's more in the sort of neoliberalism literature, citizenship literatures. I don't see them as much in the sociology of emotions. Sort of one of the big projects of my career has to try to bring 
affect theory more into sociology. And if I'm encountering sociologists who do work on affect, um, I'm, I'm encountering a lot, a lot less. They're sort of a huge influence in feminist theory. So I think people who are sort of in the sort of feminist sociology world maybe are more familiar with their work. But I encounter them a lot more in anthropology and in cultural studies. And just, yeah, I think just due to the nature that affect theory hasn't really as much um, it's slowly coming into sociology and we're working with these concepts, but um, I think that, that we aren't as conversant as, as anthropologists or cultural theorists at this point. And this actually, this might not even be a fair question, but do you have a sense of why their work has been a little bit slow to enter sociology? Because there is, there has been an emergence of sociologists using affect, but it seems like that often comes from other affect theorists. You know, I think actually I spend a lot of time thinking about this question, so I'm going to take a stab at it. You know, I think that there's, are, there are a couple different strands of affect theory. Um, and I should mention I, I run a sociology of affect reading group, so I've spent the last couple of years sort of trying to read from different places and, you know, just really sort of thinking about what affect theory can do for sociology, because I really like to think about theory as useful or not useful. And so I think there's a lot of useful stuff in affect theory for sociologists and a lot of stuff that maybe isn't as useful. So I think where sociologists have brought, and Patricia Clough, for example, engages a lot with the sort of the more Deleuzian strand of affect theory. So thinking about affect as, and the sort of Brian Masumi version of affect, where affect is a sort of physiological, you know, capacity of bodies to sense and, and relate to one another, which is the, the strand of affect theory that I use in my first book a little bit more. Whereas I think people like Sarah Ahmed and, um, Lauren Berlant are sort of marking more in the psychoanalytic, like affect as attachment. And so I think, you know, sociologists, we aren't as thrilled with engaging with psychoanalytic theory in a lot of ways, I think, because the the sort of unconscious drives piece doesn't seem very empirical to us, which, you know, fair. That makes sense. And so I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, yeah, the textual analysis method is also, it's a little bit hard to make, I think, to, to methodologically transfer some of the claims that folks like Berlant are making into sociology. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And we'll, we can get into that more when we look at the actual writing, too, and think about what it means to actually read this type of work. Yeah. So considering that, how did you get into this? When did you first read their work and what was that experience like? So I, at first, I actually cannot honestly remember um, where I first encountered the, the exact context. I remember that it was a piece that was published in Differences, which is a sort of cultural studies journal, um, sometime in grad school. Uh, I was a member of, um, I was at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I was in a reading group run by um, Claire Dakota, and I think that's how maybe I encountered it, was maybe not we read it in that reading group, but I think one of the reading group members introduced it to me because I was starting to get into affect theory. I don't remember. So I read this I read this essay, and then sometime late in grad school, I encountered the essay again because I was running a sort of summer-only reading group on affect theory for other grad students, and we read Berlant again. And then I sort of, you know, tucked it away as interesting and didn't super engage with it again until very recently. You know, and when I read it the first time, I remember thinking like, you know, this explains, honestly, for me as a millennial, sort of going from major crisis to major crisis and yeah. still going to work every day and like paying my rent and like, you know, whatever. So, but not necessarily having the tools to, to wrestle with how dense the theory is and the sort of complex traditions that it's drawing from. So I just sort of, again, filed it away in the back of my brain and was like, that's interesting. Maybe I'll come back to this someday. And then 
you know, sort of a couple of years ago, I was formulating a new project and I came back to, to cruel optimism and read the, the text. And that was very interesting to me. I can understand your experience because I started reading this for the first time yesterday in preparation for the podcast. And every paragraph had a line or two that I would underline and be like, oh, that's very profound. But I don't know if I actually processed what it meant. But I was like, I have to return to this and figure it out. And it was connecting on some sort of visceral level of saying, oh, yeah, these are experienced. There's something that they're getting at that connects with the experiences I've had. So I need to return to it. Or, I mean, you can explain it to me, which works even better. Yeah, that whole thing where I feel like it's, you know, it's explaining something. And I've read this probably four or five times at this point, And every time I read it, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm getting something else more from it. Were there specific or was there a specific idea from that book that you were drawn to or from that reading that you were drawn to? And you're saying, well, that that's something I have to have to return to or would have particular value in the next thing that I'm doing? I think it really was the concept of cruel optimism. When I first encountered it, you know, like I said, it, it, it did a lot of work to sort of explain the sort of day-to-day, like, feelings of being alive in this particular historical moment. And then, you know, I'd, I'd read other people who were engaging with the concept of cruel optimism, and I really wanted to sort of just come back to this and think through, you know, what it what it says about sort of late neoliberal moment. And I should say, you know, I, I came back to this book um, in 2020 uh, during the sort of height of lockdown. So it was sort of an, a moment to be thinking about rupture and events and um, an attachment to a way of living that is not producing good outcomes for most people. We're going to get into this in more detail when we look at the actual reading, but can get, can you give a little bit of a kind of a working definition of, of what is meant by cruel optimism? Sure, yeah. So as I would say that the simplest way to understand cruel optimism is about attachments to ideas, objects, institutions that are actually antithetical to the subject's flourishing. So Berlant is really thinking about um, this idea of the good life or the American dream as a sort of idea that most of us are sort of oriented to and attached to, right? If we do X, Y, Z, we're going to achieve the American dream. And so cruel optimism sort of names this way that we identify with and attach to and are also sort of structurally bound up in trying to live a good life. But the reality of life in some place like the United States is that the, the seeking of the American dream is actually very exhausting for most of us. And 99% of us aren't actually going to achieve what is meant by the American dream. So it, it, cruel optimism is naming this sort of like, I'm going to be attached to this idea, even at the expense of my own well-being. I see. And then how has that idea influenced your own work or your own research? Because I can definitely, as you've pointed out, it it really captures this thing that we're experiencing. But then how do you take that into sociological research? So I came back to, you know, just to sort of set the stage, I came back to the the cruel optimism and thinking about it as a, as a sort of theoretical framework, again, in sort of 2020, which was a super surreal moment, right? We we're like in lockdown, I was reading all of this stuff about, you know, our sort of way of being in the American dream in the midst of being trapped in my home and trying to like, keep my life going, despite the fact that we aren't allowed to leave. And there's, you know, this mass crisis unfolding around us. And I was working on the, at the time on a NSF grant for a project about sort of burnout and burnout discourse in the health professions. And so I was really interested in thinking about these sort of attachments to the good life and how this, you know, shapes people's day-to-day workplace experience, for example, like how is being attached to the American dream, right? I'm going to go to work and I'm going to, you know, invest my all and the work is going to give me some meaning out of it actually 
producing harm in people's day-to-day lives. So that's sort of one way that I've, I've encountered it and, and worked it into some of the work that I'm doing. And so I'm, I'm always curious about this when we're drawing on theory, whether it's a traditional theorist that's often used in a discipline in the sociology, or even more so when we're bringing in ideas from all the, surround, all the surrounding disciplines. So you have this as this guiding framework, this idea of cruel optimism. Is it something that you're directly engaging with? Are you calling it into question? Like, what are you doing with these ideas as you start the research? I don't know if I worded that in a way that completely made sense, but I'm always interested in how we take something from the abstract into yeah. something more empirical. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That's a great question. So I, one of the things that I have sort of very broadly taken for Berlant, which is not directly cruel optimism, is what I mentioned earlier, right, which is about sort of thinking about affect um, and the strand of affect theory that names attachments and how we form attachments to objects, ideas, places, which is one of the, I think, best sort of or, or most important analytic tools that affect theory can give sociology, which is thinking about relationality and understanding that that sort of attachments are fundamentally social, they're fundamentally between and among, they're about circulation, Berlant draws, and Sarah Ahmed draws as well from Marx, right, and this idea of circulation. So that sort of big picture thing, I think, has been really influential to my work. So in my first book, which was on teaching and learning the pelvic exam in medical schools, right, I was, I was sort of drawn from that to think about the sort of way that people, in particular medical educators and medical students and the sort of simulated patients who teach medical students, think about like, what is the shape of the relationship between the physician and the patient, which is a very roundabout way of saying that, you know, affect as attachment is thinking about like, what what is this relationship supposed to look like, right? How do we imagine what it looks like? What do we want out of it? How does it actually take place on the ground? And so, you know, I was able to really sort of dig into the he has sort of a situational analysis approach where I'm using sort of extant discourse and then also interviews and some observations to think about, you know, how are people talking about this relationship? How are they talking about the way that we can form attachments, right? Especially given the sort of the average clinical encounter is like seven minutes, right? So how do you form an attachment yeah. very quickly? Um, so in my sort of previous work, that's been the biggest thing that's been, I think, really influential from this. And then in the sort of current project, right, I'm, I'm really thinking more about you know, again, how people get attached to ideas about what it means to be a physician in the, the United States and sort of what are some of the effects um, for trainees and physicians on, you know, being attached to some of these ideas. So, again, I, I use sort of discourse and or extant discourse or content analysis really alongside sort of interviews and observations. And so how would you see this concept of cruel optimism playing out? And you're kind of already spelling it out, but I'm just wondering what it would look like in practice when you hear someone talking about their experience being a resident at a, at a medical facility or talking about their interactions with their patients or the hours that they're working, like how would it actually play out? Sure. So one of the things that I look for, you know, is in, again, some of the accounts that people present either, you know, in the sort of professional literatures, I'm really interested in the ways that professions are sort of talking about the physician patient relationship. My first book, looked, one of the chapters was devoted to patient-centeredness, right? And so this idea that physicians are supposed to be really patient-centered. So I did a lot of work of looking at the sort of educational materials that medical students are given, the sort of statements that come from professional associations like the American Medical Association, and really 
you know, sort of doing a couple of things. And one of those is looking at like, what are the implicit values that are being transmitted to learners and to physicians through framing things in a particular way? And then how are, how are trainees um, and sort of other people in the social space sort of taking to those, right? Attaching to them. Are they identifying with that? Are they not identifying with that? And how does that shape, you know, I spent a lot of time and the, the current project is also thinking about, right? Like how do people understand their own identity and relationship to these discourses about what the sort of ideal or the good physician is supposed to look like. I see. And then drawing on this work, it would be looking at how some of those ideals or attachments that are formed actually get in the way of flourishing or that become these unattainable things that are always held out as a future that can never be realized. Is that, is that right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. 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 Right. Like, so this, you know, especially my work on patient centeredness, right? Like there's going to be this perfect ideal relationship with an equal sort of power relation where you respect the patient and you meet the patient where they're at and everything is driven by the patient. But medical sociologists can tell you that's not what a clinical encounter looks like. So how is being attached to the idea of doing medicine in this way then also harming providers and also patients. So it's so interesting because it's it's taking this when she talks about the idea of the good life, right? It's this very grand thing that I can that we can point to and it's unattainable, but then taking it into the actual into the exam room or into into the experience of the doctor or the, or the uh, resident. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So considering your current research, are there other theorists that you see Berlant's ideas working particularly well with? Sure. So I think that the sort of most, and I know that you've done an episode on Sarah Ahmed's work, and I think that that's sort mm-hmm. of the, the place where I see Berlant in conversation the most is thinking about Sarah Ahmed's work. Like I think that the cruel optimism and the promise of happiness are sort of companion texts in a lot of ways because they're taking this mandate of happiness. I should say something that, that that's the other piece of the burnout project that I'm looking at is, is this mandate to be happy, right? This mandate to be satisfied by your job that we see playing out in a lot of these discourses, um, which also has huge implications for academia. So I, I, I see like in terms of cultural theorists, I think that those um, two theorists are, are most common or best in conversation with one another. And I think that, you know, a lot where I can see Berlant's work in particular on cruel optimism being a good sort of fellow traveler in, for sociological thinking is, is around sort of social movements in particular. So, for example, Deborah Gould's work on ACT UP, right, and thinking about, you know, how do social movements mobilize emotion, right, and how do they think about the conditions of the present versus where the social movement wants to take us. So I think social movement theorists um, in particular uh, could engage with this. I think a lot about full optimism's emphasis on neoliberalism uh, alongside Eva Aluz's work on emotional capitalism, right? And this sort of move towards positive psychology, right? And this management through feeling is what I really engage with in my first book. So I think about Eva Aluz. And this is literature I don't know as well, but I think about the sort of like ther- the both therapeutic and state citizenship nexus literature. Um, So I think, for example, about Paige Sweet's um, recent book about sort of politics of surviving and and how, you know, people have to make investments in certain narratives in order to get resources from the state. So I think that the, the, again, I don't know the citizenship literature as well, but that's where I could see this sort of, you know, cruel optimism idea being really helpful and useful in sociology. Like, what do we imagine the state to be? What do we expect it to provide to us? And how are those attachments to the idea of state-centered care 
actually harmful to us. For purely selfish reasons, can you say more about the connection to positive psychology and the management through feeling? Because that, that's one of the, I, that's something that really just interests me on a personal level. So I'm curious if you could say a little bit more how that connects with these ideas. Sure. Yeah. So I'm thinking in particular, uh, I believe the book is called Happy Citizens. Eva Luz and a co-author write about this. And then in The Promise of Happiness, Sarah Ahmed writes about this as well. And this is where some of the background work that I was doing for the Burnout Project, in particular the grant that I applied for, is really thinking about the emergence of, of positive psychology in the 1990s. And Eva Luce traces the, the sort of history of managerialism, right? And this idea of like, the manager is really the go-between the company owners and the workers. And a lot of what managers do is try to keep workers happy as opposed to pr- improve the conditions of their work. And so I think I see sort of positive psychology fitting into this because it's really about like a sort of science-based, you know, let's figure out how to like maximize people's satisfaction at work. Let's think about resilience. Let's think about uh, mindfulness as a way to sort of like create these folks who are going to be happier and more excited to do their job as opposed to actually improving the structure of their workplaces. So that's in particular with the, you know, the work I'm doing on burnout. That's one of the things I'm really interested in is like resilience narratives and mindfulness. This is the stuff that comes out of positive psychology. And there's this whole thing in positive psychology called post-traumatic growth, right? That names the sort of like ways that people become happier in some ways or more productive out of traumatic experiences as opposed to just traumatized. And I think that that's a really sort of interesting cultural moment to be using sort of science-based, in particular psychology, to really like, how do we make workers more productive in, by using this sort of like happiness discourse? So it's literally the science of doing what Lauren Berlin's critiquing, of saying, yeah. here's how we're yeah. going to create a stronger attachment to something that is keeping you from flourishing, but the attachment is going to be maintained because we're convincing you that you can be happy and we'll celebrate how, how you're a hero yeah. being so resilient. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I'm going to talk about that with resilience and, you know, I think about this and I think about, you know, in my first book, I talk about affective governance, right. Which is experts who shape people's emotions and affects in particular ways to get stuff out of them and positive psychology, right. It was responding to this idea. Oh, psychology is all about pathology, right? So let's look at the other side, which is like, how do we make people not pathological? You know, we make them live better lives. All right. So this is, this is my favorite question of the episode, which is just reflecting back on your project, the research you've done, your experience reading this work, your experience in the classroom talking about, or in in the reading groups that you facilitate, what are the main advantages or selling points of engaging with Lauren Berlant's writing? And I am really fascinated by this because it's both exciting to read because there's all these sentences that I underline and they seem very, sometimes very poetic. Sometimes the words just kind of leap off the page, but then there's other passages which are really difficult and they will get into lots of pop culture examples or going into like a deeper textual analysis, which I know a lot of sociologists, whether at the undergraduate, graduate, or level of being a professor, we're just not that comfortable with. So what would you say, what's kind of, what's, what's your, your pitch for why we should undertake the task of reading this work, whether it's this book or any of their other works? So I think that their ideas are just so useful. And I said at the beginning, coming to this reading for the first time, it felt like it was naming an experience that I was very familiar with, but didn't have a language for. And I think that's what, when we work with students, it's one of the things that makes students excited about sociology is when you have a language for a set of experiences that you 
didn't know could be named. So I think that that's something like cruel optimism really names a set of experiences that I think for the most part, we're all pretty familiar with, especially academics. And it gives a language to us. And I think, you know, Berlant's writing is difficult. It's very dense. It's very technical. But I also think it's very lively. And as you mentioned, it can be very poetic at times. And it's it's fun. It's funny. And I would say for folks coming to the reading for the first time, Berlant has given a lot of lectures that are on YouTube and just they're a really engaging speaker. So that's like a fun sort of introduction to their work is is watch them give some speeches or, you know, readings and, and talks about their work and then come to the text can be really helpful. And I just, yeah, I really think that they're naming this, this feeling or, you know, I saw a joke on Twitter. I don't remember the citational politics of, of social media, sets, but I don't know who originated this phrase, but somebody said like, affect theory is really just vibes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I think Berlant in particular, right, is right, like naming the vibe of the current moment where we're all so exhausted and burnt out right now and striving for this thing that we feel like we should attain, but we're not able to attain. And so Berlant's theory really names what that project is and also how we can think otherwise, right? Like how can we form other forms of attachments to other sets of ideas, other forms of relationality that won't be so exhausting and overwhelming and wearing out for us as individuals and as communities. When you're when you're answering this, I'm thinking, so we're recording this right after our semester's end. And I'm just thinking about the experience. I don't have any profound thoughts about this, but just trying to convince students to just continue to come to class, continue to do the reading. This idea that as a university, as college professors, we have to push to some level of saying, well, just keep doing this thing while we can see all these things collapsing around us, but we're still pushing this idea of being attached to the project. So I don't know if the reading is, it's, it's both connecting with me, but now it's also being like, am I doing the right, (laughs) right thing? I wonder this all the time, right? My colleagues and I are constantly having these conversations and I'm seeing this all across higher ed, right? Students, there's so many articles, right? And we're also just as educators having this experience that students are burnt out, they're checked out, student engagement is down. I think our own burnout and, and engagement is also down, right? People don't want to peer review for various, very good reasons. Doing service, right? I'm constantly reading stuff on, on Reddit where people are like, I'm just not doing service and I can't find anybody to do service anymore. And I just, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about like, what are we really attached to, right? We're attached to this idea of normalcy that quite frankly, doesn't exist anymore post-pandemic. And so, you know, how do we reshape those attachments in ways that are going to meet students, meet our colleagues and ourselves where we're at now, and not reproduce some of the harms? And I think Berlant's work really gets us to, to think about those things, right? Like, what are we attached to when we are doing this project of higher education? And is this a thing we want to be attached to or not? I think that is a a perfect question to end this podcast episode on. And then I should say to people listening, we're about to record another episode where we get to actually get into the text, which will be really exciting. So thank you for for recording this episode. And then for people listening, make sure to check out the next episode that we record as well. Yeah, thank you. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing theme music, SUNY Brockport for providing financial support, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, Thank you for giving theory a chance.